We're reading Matthew 26, verse 47 to 56. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on page 1040. The heading is Jesus Arrested. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that, that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion? that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Thanks to God for his word. Good morning. Please keep your Bibles open uh, in that passage in Matthew 26. Uh, Following on from uh, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane last week, we're going to look at this uh, arrest of Jesus this morning. But um, before we start that, I'd like to... uh, read you some highlights from a, uh, a newspaper article that was in the Geelong Advertiser last week. It's reported the following. And, uh, we might even have a picture to go with it. A man who allegedly fled police last month and was considered armed and dangerous was among four people arrested yesterday after police swooped on a Grovedale home. Two females and another male were arrested after a raid on a property at Adelong Court, Grovedale, about 4.45pm. Detective Senior Constable John Digby said the trio were last night assisting police with their inquiries. That, uh, now, I don't know if anyone really remembered that story from the week. There's nothing... I actually sort of had second thoughts. Is this a, a good way to begin? It's not really a, an incredibly interesting story. Uh, to, to, to draw from the newspaper. But actually, I chose it because it's a very typical arrest operation. But I just want to go back and, and pull out a few features from that newspaper article. First of all, there was a criminal who was considered dangerous. Why was he considered dangerous? 
Well, it's because he had fled from the police last month. He had resisted arrest. And also in this article, it said the police swooped. Why did the police swoop? Well, of course, so that the criminal can be caught unawares. And it's interesting that there were four people arrested, but the article says that uh, the three others were assisting police. What about the most dangerous man? What was he doing? Was he exercising his right to remain silent? With Easter uh, approaching, this morning we're going to look at a very atypical arrest, a very unusual arrest. And in God's word this morning, we're going to see a man who is clearly not like your everyday criminal. And we're going to uh, look at Matthew 26, verses 47 through 48. And we're going to see three interactions. We're going to see Jesus and Judas interacting. We're going to see Jesus and Peter interacting. And we're going to see Jesus and the crowd and their interaction. And then after that, we'll think through a, a few points of application. Before we begin in the passage, let's pray. Father God, as we look to your word now, we pray that you will uh, help us to understand and to grasp what's here. We pray that you will give us hearts to receive uh, and love what is here. We pray that you will give us a desire to apply and to live for Jesus. Um, Father, I pray for myself. That, that you'll enable me to, to accurately and clearly and passionately um, bring out what's in your word here. And uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So the events of this passage take place just after uh, Jesus has been praying in Gethsemane. And... It begins just as Jesus has shouted to his sleepy disciples, come on, get up, let's go. And right from the beginning of this chapter, there's been a build-up to this moment. So go back to the start of Matthew 26, and you see that he, in verse 2, he says, it's coming, it's two days away that the Son of Man will be betrayed. Two days away. Verse 3, the authorities begin to plan to capture Jesus. Verse 16, Judas begins to plan his part in the operation. Verse 31, Jesus says, it's going to happen tonight. And as we get to verse 46, verse 47, bang, now it's happening Action. And so, verse 47, Judas turns up with this crowd in tow. Now, they're probably not just some wild street mob. If we're looking at Luke's Gospel, we find out that actually this is the official security detail sent from the temple. It's the, it's the Jewish temple police. And they form a big group of heavily armed people. Now, why are they armed? It seems that 
they expect that Jesus is going to resist arrest or perhaps try to escape. Perhaps they're worried that if Jesus does make a run for it and does escape, that this will be the thing that will will tip him over the edge and that he'll actually, because of this, he'll respond by starting an uprising. So I think they realise that if they're going to get him tonight, they've got to do it well. And so they turn up with their big crowd heavily armed. Verse 48, we see Judas. He's got two descriptions. He's described as one of the twelve. So he's one of Jesus' circle of his twelve closest friends. And he's also described as the betrayer. Now, for us as the readers, it's not a surprise that Judas is the betrayer. In fact, just in this chapter, the word betray or betray or betrayal comes up ten times. So, so we're expecting it, we're ready for it. But interestingly, it's also not a surprise for Jesus. Uh, five times before this point in this chapter, Jesus has used the words betray or betrayer. Um, Jesus has been ready and waiting for Judas to approach. And when Jesus sees Judas coming, he receives him and receives his kiss. Now, I think the kiss uh, demonstrates a few things for us. First of all, the kiss is is a sign of identity. Um, Remember, it's dark, it's the middle of the night, it's an age before photography, so when they're bringing the, the police, probably in those days people would be more familiar with the sound of the voice of celebrities rather than the appearance of their face. So, so Judas has said to them, you know, I'll, I'll mark out which one is the one that you're after. Uh, secondly, it also shows us just how gentle Jesus was known to be and, and, and how gentle Judas knew Jesus was. Um, I mean, if Judas had really thought that Jesus was a criminal, he wouldn't have got within, within punching distance. Um, but the fact that Judas goes right up to him, he knows that he's not expecting Jesus to react violently. But thirdly, this kiss shows the depth of Judas's treachery, that someone so close to Jesus would turn on him and we would find that someone who, who had spent so much time with Jesus actually, in the end, wouldn't really know him at all. And, and in doing the devil's bidding, Jesus is, is so boldly deceptive. We're supposed to be horrified by what Judas has done. And... Um, when Christine introduced that psalm, that psalm we read at the start of the service as one, some of the, the, the difficult, hard ground of Scripture, um, it is. Because uh, in, in Psalm 55, King David is pouring out his agony and his anguish, and I'm not sure if you, you picked up what, what the problem was. Psalm 55, um, verse 12, he, he says, look, if it, was, if it was enemies, if it was people out there, who were out to get me? Look, I could, I could cope with that. 
but it's one of my friends. It's someone who I've, I've eaten with and shared life with who has turned against me. And David is, is full of this agony over what's happening. The, the Psalms... Um, God, God took David through these experiences and caused him to write them down in this way so that the Psalms become like a, like a reflection ahead of time of what the Messiah would go through. What it was like for Jesus to have his own friend turn against him. Psalm 55 is such a difficult passage because it actually... It actually spells out what it really meant for Jesus to come and die for our sins. Now, Jesus' words, back in Matthew now, Jesus' words to Judas puzzled me at first. Uh, This is verse 50. Jesus says to Judas, Friend, do what you came for. Now, when I first read that, I thought, is Jesus actually commanding Judas? Is is Jesus actually telling Judas to go ahead and and do this terrible thing? Is Jesus telling Judas to sin? But I went and checked it up and read up on it a bit more and looked at the original language, and there's actually no command in this sentence. It's It's a sentence that it's very hard to express in English, but... What I think it really is, is it's an acknowledgement of what's going on. These words of Jesus in verse 50 mean something along the lines of, Hey Jude, I know that you know that there's something going on here. There's something fishy about to happen. That's that's really what Jesus is saying to to Judas. I know what's going on and it's not right. And so, while our common criminal is swooped on unawares, in this passage, we have Jesus caught, ready and waiting. Um, Verse 50, they grab him. Next point. And um, unlike the common crooks, crooks, Jesus doesn't resist the arrest. But, quick as a flash, one of his disciples whips out his sword and draws blood. And John's Gospel tells us that the disciple was Peter. Peter's ready to go down in a blaze of glory. But Jesus gives him three reasons why he should put the sword away. First, in verse 52, he says, Look, it's rash, it's not very sensible. Peter, that's a good way to get yourself killed. Verse 53, Jesus says, It's unnecessary. If I wanted to, I could call on far more effective weapons. Legions of angels. And thirdly, verse 54, It's not in line with God's purposes. The, the, the scriptures, the Old Testament says that the Messiah must suffer, and so he must. And you notice this word must. It, it's strong. Jesus is 100% dedicated to this path. And for that reason, he will not resist arrest. 
Um, Jesus has spoken to Judas. Jesus has spoken to Peter. And now in verse 55, he addresses the crowd. He's talking here to the police. And while in the, the hours ahead when he comes to the trial and all of that, he, he's, he, uh, he doesn't say very much, at this moment, Jesus exercises his right to open his mouth. And in verse 55, he says, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out to meet me with swords and clubs to capture me? Jesus' willingness to go, the fact that he he doesn't resist or try to escape, actually shows that this anticipated use of force is over the top. He's saying, you guys have misjudged me. You, you, You come here with all this, you don't understand me. Then he goes on, every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. He's talking about the timing of his arrest. He's saying, look, you yourselves can see that in daylight you didn't do anything. But the fact that you've been sent here in the middle of the night means that something shameful is going on, something that has to be hidden from the people. You see, Jesus wants everybody to clearly see that his willingness to go His agreeableness to the arrest is not in any way an admission of guilt. Rather, it's a determination to follow the path that's been set for him by the prophets. Can you see how at the same time, this is an act of wicked men, but it's also according to God's set purpose and plan and foreknowledge. And so as we get down to the end of Jesus' words here, everyone sees that the arrest is a done deal. And the disciples prove themselves to be far more courageous when it comes to bearing the sword than when it comes to bearing the cross. Think about that for yourself. Courage in bearing the sword or in bearing the cross? And as the disciples run into the darkness, the curtain closes on this scene. So what does all this mean for us? I think this has some tremendous um, truth that we can apply. And I can think of at least three areas in which this passage applies to life today. First, in the area of knowing God's will. Can you see how twice in this passage, Jesus says, my actions are based on the scriptures. Now, I'm not presuming to really fully understand how the, the psychological life of Jesus worked. It's, sort of, it's beyond my mind to, to understand how he, he's fully God and fully man in one person, and and God knows everything, and man has finite knowledge, and but that's united in one person. I, I don't know how that works internally in Jesus' mind, but we do know 
what people observed about him. We do know that the book of Hebrews says that he, he learned obedience through what he suffered and that the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus grew in wisdom. Uh, he, he sat under the teachers of the law. And so presumably a, a key part of Jesus' life was studying the Scriptures. And so when it comes to following God's will and saying this is what God wants, we shouldn't think that Jesus is operating on completely different rules to us. Um, when he's teaching his disciples about his suffering, it's not, it's not some idea that he came up with, that, that, that God revealed to him in private. It's actually something that the scriptures had already revealed. And thinking about life today, there's, there's so many ways that people search for God's will. Um, searching after dreams and visions or, or strong impressions or, or trying to interpret events around us and try, trying to see if there's hidden messages in them. But let's just think about this point. If Jesus himself used the scriptures to, to, to understand and to describe God's will, then how much more are the scriptures our, our ongoing port of call? keep coming back to as we try to understand God's will. It's one area of application. Another one, let's think about war and non-violence. What, what does this passage tell us about those areas? Lots of times I've heard religion accused as being the source of all wars and I'm sure religion has been the cause of at least some wars and I'm sure that the church's record is far from spotless. But regardless of how the church may have acted in the past, we have an undeniable fact that, that while Muhammad and others have been men of blood, Jesus said, put that sword away. But what does, he, what does he mean by this? How, how does that apply to us? Um, John Calvin has a helpful comment. He says that this passage is designed to forbid the uh, private individuals to use the sword. What he means is that it may be quite appropriate for police to use force in, in the right circumstances, but not right for me as uh, average Joe down the street to take the law into my own hands and to use force to myself, just like Peter did. So I think that's a, a really helpful comment. But does this passage say anything more than that? Does it say anything about war between nations? And not directly, but, but I think it is significant that Jesus chose not to call on the angels. He chose not to call on all the weapons that were available to him. I think Jesus affirms a principle that his followers are not to advance his kingdom by force, but by coercion. You can't and you shouldn't force anyone to be a Christian. How does Jesus advance his kingdom? 
It's by the cross. And by sending people out with the message of the cross, that's how people are saved. And so if we, if we do come to the conclusion from other parts of Scripture that there are certain just circumstances for war, I think this passage should remind us that it should only ever be for, for purposes like minimising human suffering and never seen as a tool to advance the church. Okay, the final area of application, and I think this is the main point of the passage that we're getting to now. Remember our garden variety criminal had the tendency to avoid capture and to resist arrest. We should be able to see here that for Jesus, he's not like that at all. This is clearly a case of wrongful arrest. What we see in this passage is the sinlessness of Jesus. We see an example of Jesus being tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. When it came down to a choice between self-preservation or following the path to the cross, what did Jesus choose? He chose to obey. And so Jesus' arrest was not a result of weakness, but of willingness. His arrest and the suffering that comes after this is is not something out of his control. It's not an example of cosmic child abuse. That's that's one charge that has been um, levelled against the, the cross and the Christian teaching of the cross. But it's not, because... This is a a grown man acting on a decision that he's thought over and he he has taken the decision to be in that place where Judas will come and find him. Jesus' act on the cross is a carefully considered act of love, of love for God and love for sinners. So so this passage should assure us of his unwavering commitment to us. If Jesus was able to stay firm and focused here in the garden at this time when even his very own people were running off into the dark, if Jesus stood firm for us then, how much more will he stand by us now? Because where is he now? He stands for us, sinless and glorified in heaven. And so this is what we remember at Easter. We remember sinless Jesus. We remember the Christ, the Messiah, who suffered willingly, who is the Lord who now reigns. And just as he shared life on earth here with us, he calls us, he calls you to share in his life. He calls you to share in his sinless record. 
He calls you to share for a short time in his suffering. And he calls you to share for eternity in his glory. What a great saviour.